Now hear God's holy word from Luke chapter 7. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Dear Father in heaven, we desperately need to hear your voice penetrating through the crowd, the, the crowd and the cloud of, of insane lying voices, voices that destroy, voices that impart death through their speech. We get to hear your voice now through your word, and I pray that you would help me to articulate it clearly. I pray that you would deliver me and us all from error, from any addition or distraction from or to your word. And Father, speak to us by your Holy Spirit today. We ask this earnestly in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. People of God, what is it like to be in the presence of someone who has authority? A person who holds a great deal of power. What What they say goes, and nobody asks any questions. They make decisions, and people jump to fulfill their wishes. You might be able to think of a time in your life where you were in the presence of a powerful, respected person. There's this sense of strength and confidence and influence. It's it's almost palpable in the air. There are those whose, whose presence is so authoritative that... You want them to tell you to do something so you can do it, so you can please them. You want them to be happy with you. You want them to really love you and appreciate what you've done. Uh, you you want a, an opportunity to honor this powerful person. I've only known a few people like that in my lifetime. A, a pastor, an elder, a CEO, a man who built a company. I could count them on one hand, people that I can remember that had that kind of influence and power and authority where it was, you could sense it in in the air. Not many, not many. I think those kinds of people are rare in our world because most of us do not live our lives in places where there are clear, uh, a a tight sense of, of clear authority. We, we don't work in places where there is a clear authority structure, most of us. When I was in the corporate world, I remember I reported to several different people, and I was, I was, uh, 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 I was accountable to several different people, some of whom had done the job less than I had done, and 
poorly and, and but I was still I they had less experience but when so when they told me to do a thing I felt pretty comfortable saying well yeah that's interesting but how about we try it this way and and we we often did I felt comfortable with that well the world we inhabit is so democratized that automatic unquestioning obedience to a clear authority is a pretty foreign concept it's it's foreign to us the, the experience of a superior saying I require you to go do this, and then, and then we respond, yes, I will go do that exactly like you told me to do it. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty rare. It's not a common experience for lots of us, for many people. Now, sure, there are people we respect. There are people whose wishes we accept if they want us to do something, and we generally go along with their desires. But we also feel very comfortable debating or disagreeing with a superior who asks something of us. We, we live like obedience and compliance are, are up to us, and the degree to which we respond is a matter of how we feel about it. We obey on our own terms. And because of this, we tend to assume that the authority of the Lord Jesus is sort of like that. It's more or less a, a suggestion that his authority and rule, we can take it or, or leave it. His rule over the world and his rule over us, we assume, is not so direct, not so authoritative, not so final. That Jesus is free to ask for things. I mean, sure, anybody can ask for things. Anybody can ask me to do something. But we're within our rights to debate and delay and disagree. But people of God, this is not how the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ works. You see, we're not used to kings. We... We are accustomed to voting our leaders in and out of office, and that has made us a people who fail to appreciate clear and defined authority. But at the center of our story today in Luke's gospel, there is a man who is himself an authority, who is under authority, and whose life is centered around a well-structured, a well-defined authority system. He, he, because of this, he appreciates the authority that Jesus holds. This man at the center of our story in Luke 7 is a centurion. He's a Roman military man who is placed in charge over a company of men stationed somewhere around the Sea of Galilee. A, a centurion was placed over a hundred soldiers, and then there were ten Ten centuries made up a cohort, so there was one chief centurion over that thousand men, and then and then six cohorts made up a, a legion, and that man at the top of that was called a, a legate over the over the legion. So what that means is the centurion he might have been over a hundred men, he might have been over a thousand, but he was an authority, but he was not the top authority. He also had to answer to someone else. He was responsible to and accountable to someone else. So he was an authority and he was under authority. In addition to those men who served him, he has a house full of servants who are also under his authority. And at the beginning of the story, we find that the centurion has a servant who is dear to him, who is sick and near death. The Original language gives an indication that this servant might have been a young boy, a young child, uh, uh, not, a, uh, not an adult, but a child who is terminally ill. There's, there's not much more pitiful, 
There's not much more sorrowful thing than, that you'll ever see than a sick child, especially a child, I mean, any sick child, but a, a child that you love, a child that you're invested in. This, this child is dear to him, and this child is terminally ill. Luke is not specific about his disease, but there's no question that this, this servant child is very near the end. He doesn't have long to live. And so having heard about Jesus... And having heard about Jesus' authority over sickness, the centurion sends a delegation of elders to go find Jesus and plead with him to heal his servant. Now, this might sound like an odd relationship. You've got a Roman centurion who sends a delegation of Jewish elders to go find Jesus, the Messiah, the healer, the one who has the power over over sickness. That's, a, that's an odd triangle of, of affiliation. But you see, this situation is so desperate and this boy is so sick that these, these three authorities, these three powers all move together to the healing of, of the boy, of the young man. When the elders get to Jesus, we find out why they're so motivated to follow the wishes of the centurion. You know, the Jews hate the Romans. Why would Jewish elders do what a Roman centurion asked them to do? Well, we find out that these Jewish elders are indebted to the centurion. They come to Jesus, they beg him earnestly to help, and they say, the one for whom you should do this is deserving. That's the word they use. They say, he is deserving. He loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. That little sentence gives us so much insight into the circumstances here. The centurion is obviously a man of means, which means that he's probably not a leader of a hundred. He may be that leader of a thousand. Whether he's a philanthropist just interested in local cultures and he thinks it would be a really good idea to build these Jews a synagogue out of the kindness of his heart, or maybe he's a smooth diplomat who thinks, I can control and subdue these people a lot more easily if they think that I'm on their side and I build them a synagogue, or maybe some combination of the two. Either way, uh, he has built them a place of worship in Capernaum, and now the Jews feel beholden to him. And look how they translate all that to Jesus. They say, he's done all this for us, so he is deserving. In other words, we owe him. And now you owe him, Jesus. He's worthy of your help. He has done great works. He has built us buildings. He has built God a building. And now God owes him. You see... These men are not operating in an economy of mercy. They're operating in an economy of merit and obligation. If the centurion is so deserving of some great deliverance because he has done something for God, does that mean that there are others who are not deserving because they haven't done similar things? Those who haven't built buildings aren't deserving of deliverance? You see, these elders live in this world where love is only owed to those who they feel deserve love, those who have earned love and mercy. This is a dangerous way to think. And by the way, this is terrible theology. Those who do good things deserve good things. God owes them. And those who sin, I guess, need to do something good to balance it all out. You have to pay God back by doing something good. 
after you have done something wrong. And by the way, you have to keep score to make sure that all comes out straight. I have done these things for God and obviously he deserves and, and I'm owed these, these things. He, he is beholden to me to do these things for me. I messed up here. Yeah. But I did these other three things to kind of balance it out. And it all, it all comes out on the, on the ledger. See, in this economy, there is no place for mercy. There is no place for grace. No place for faith in Jesus. You see, they don't say he is a believing man or he loves uh, the God of Abraham. He, they don't say that. They don't mention his faith. It doesn't matter whether you're a believer. All that matters is what you do or what you don't do. And if you have yourself convinced that you're pretty good, that you've done enough good things to deserve good things, and when something bad happens, what do you say? If you say, I've done these things, I deserve good things, bad things have happened, what is my response? I don't deserve this. I deserve better. We need to be reminded, though, that we deserve nothing. We deserve zero. Um, you, hear, you hear people saying, especially... I. Boy, I try so hard to keep the newspapers out of the sermon, but sometimes it's so hard to do that. You hear people saying over and over, we get the leaders we deserve. And so the current mess is all about us getting what we deserve. Actually, the current mess is way better than what we deserve, right? We deserve far, far, far worse than what we're getting. You think it's bad right now? You think, you think they're bad? No, you don't get it. We deserve far worse. Oh, but wait four years and we'll see what we deserve maybe. But you see, we deserve far, far worse than what we have. But that's because we're thinking in this, in this economy of what we deserve and what we, what, we, what we merit. We deserve nothing. We don't deserve the next breath that we take. We don't deserve the next meal that we're going to eat. We don't deserve to wake up every morning. You didn't deserve to roll out of bed today. God doesn't owe us anything. But praise be to God, we don't live in a merit-based world where we only get what we deserve. We live in a grace-based world where, where, where everything is an expression of God's grace to us. We don't pay God back for the good things he's done for us. The only payment that is sufficient to God is the sacrifice of his son on the cross. It's the only payment that he accepts. Our obedience isn't an effort then to store up more karma so that everything balances out. Our obedience to him and our worship of him is what a thankful son does for a father whom he loves. It's what a faithful servant does to please a powerful and kind master. But we see throughout the Gospels where this terrible merit theology leaked out into the culture and all kinds of terrible practicalities where when it comes to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the only people who are loved, the only people who are appreciated, the only ones who, who get any attention are the ones who deserve it, those who've lived up to their human standard. And you can tell today when people live in a merit-based economy, a merit-based theology. You can tell this. You, you know it. You have to earn their love. You have to earn their appreciation. They're always trying to earn yours. It's really easy to lose their love. It's, it's really easy to lose their thankfulness. And if you ask them why, well, they can show you a scorecard. 
You see, we, we've got a list here where you've messed up, and so that's why we're, we don't appreciate you. That's why we don't love you. Here's, here's, why you. here's why we don't love you. You see, we didn't learn this from Jesus. And in fact, we don't even learn it from the centurion. The only people who are expressing this in this story are these Jewish elders. In fact, the centurion's a different story. That's the nonsense that the Jews are using here. But Jesus goes with them. They come to him and say, uh, this man is deserving. So Jesus goes along with them. And when he gets close to the house, the centurion sends another delegation of friends to meet Jesus with a message. And the centurion sends his friends with this. Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. The Jews say he's deserving. But what does the centurion say? I am not deserving. I'm not deserving to stand in your presence. I'm not deserving that you should come to my house. The centurion recognizes the great glory and the authority of Jesus and says, I'm not deserving of anything. I don't deserve your time. I don't deserve the honor of you coming into my house or onto my property. Now, most people, if they see a celebrity or they know a celebrity is coming around, they want to get as close to them as they can. You know, you want some piece of them. You want an autograph. You want to take a picture so it looks like your best buddies and you're all hanging out. Even though it's only three seconds, you got this picture you can put on Facebook. Look, I'm big buddies with this guy, this athlete, whoever. But the, but the centurion doesn't think that way. He's not trying to get a piece of Jesus. The man is too humble for any of that. This centurion is a man of great authority and great responsibility but also great humility. And so the centurion says, I'm not even worthy to come to you. I do understand how this works though, the centurion says. I'm a man in authority. I tell my soldiers to go and they go. I tell them to come and they come. They don't ask any questions. They don't debate. They don't complain. They do it. I say this and they do it. So all I wanted you to do, Jesus, all I was asking for is for you to say the word and my servant would be healed. It's funny that the centurion talks about his own authority here, how he sends people and they go do what he asks because he's done it twice now. He, sent, he, told the, he told the elders of the Jews, he says, go get Jesus. And they went to talk to Jesus. And then he sent his friends out. When he heard Jesus was coming close, he sent his friends out and said, hey, tell him not to come close. All he needs to do is say a word. You see, the centurion's authority is very evident here. And he gets it. He understands it. He says, you know, I may be over a thousand men, but Jesus outranks me. He understands and appreciates the real authority that Jesus has, that he possesses an authority over sickness and death. He's heard about this and he knows that if a man legitimately has that kind of power, he doesn't need to come over here to exercise it. All he has to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say it and it's done, Jesus. Don't waste your time coming all the way over here. Just say it and my servant will be healed. The centurion understood something that the Jews didn't get at that time and something that many Christians don't even understand today. The centurion professes that Jesus is at the top of the chain of command. He is over everything. He is the complete and final authority. Popular Christian music and popular Christian literature talk about Jesus as a, as a helper, as a comforter, as a friend. He is all of that, but he's all of that because he is Lord. He's all of that because he is ruler, he is king, he is judge, he is God. And that's what the centurion confesses. When Jesus hears this, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled. What, is, what does it mean to marvel? 
It means to be astonished. It means to be shocked. It means to be floored. It means to be wow. Now, Jesus only marvels twice in all the Gospels. It takes a lot to marvel Jesus. I mean, what does it take to surprise Jesus? He only marvels twice. One time he marvels at the unbelief of his own people. And this is the only other time he marvels at the belief of this centurion. He was surprised. He was shocked. He says, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. This man gets it. He understands. And when the friends get back to the house, the boy is healed. Jesus and the centurion never talk directly. They never see each other face to face in this story, in this account. All of the communication is through elders and friends. But still, Jesus heals the boy and he answers the prayer of the centurion. Now, the day after this, everyone's still likely rejoicing and talking about this wonderful miracle. But Jesus and his disciples come upon a funeral procession. And let's read what happens next. We'll just read this next story and, uh, and put these two stories together. Verse 11. Now, it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he had come near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went through all Judea and all the surrounding region. This story of the death of the son of a widow being carried outside of the city to be buried outside of the city is a foreshadow of another story at the end of Luke's gospel of the death of a son of a widow who's carried outside of the city. This first boy is resurrected. The second son is also going to be resurrected. This first son is going to die again. The second son is never going to die again. He's resurrected to eternal life and is, has in effect defeated death and the grave in his resurrection. But this, this story here is just a little taste of what's going to happen to Jesus himself in, in Luke's gospel. But the day after the healing of the centurion's servant, Jesus and his disciples travel to a little town around Galilee called Nain. Jesus has quite a large crowd with him, and everyone's still rejoicing over the healing that happened the day before. This big crowd traveling with Jesus meets another big crowd. This great crowd of rejoicing people meets this great crowd of grieving people coming out of the city, a large funeral procession. The man who passed away and his mother must have been well known in the small town. And, and there, a lot of people have come out to, to grieve with her. In those days, you know, when, when someone dies, you don't wait a long time to bury them. You have to act pretty quickly. So this death is still very raw. It's still very fresh. The, the loss is very recent to these people when Jesus comes near them. And when Jesus draws near to the grieving party with his big group of rejoicing people... He does three shocking things. Three, Jesus does three unbelievable things, each one more shocking than the last. First, when he gets close to the grieving party, he says to the dead man's mother, 
do not weep. Well, that's, that's kind of cold. That's kind of abrasive, isn't it? What do you mean telling the mother of a dead son, don't weep? But see, Jesus has compassion on her. The, the, verse 13 says he, he had compassion on her. So this is, this is not an insensitive thing that Jesus is saying. Because he had compassion on her, he says, do not weep. Not everybody knows what he's about to do, but he knows that he's about to turn her weeping into laughter. So don't cry, Jesus says. Trust me, you're gonna love this. Watch what's gonna happen. Something is about to happen, which is gonna change everything. That's the first shocking thing he does. You tell a mother, do not weep over her son? Yeah, because that's, that's, that's step one. The second thing he does, he touches the open coffin. What is he doing? You don't do that. Not as a Jew, especially. That makes you unclean. That contaminates you. You're crossing the boundary of ritual purity. Corruption spreads from death. Not to mention how uncouth it is to stop a funeral procession, to touch the coffin, to just walk up and touch a casket. That's the second shocking thing he does. But of course, we know that he can do that because death has no power over him, right? He is the authority. Death has no authority over him. The third shocking thing he does is he speaks to the young man. He says, arise. Here, once again, is Jesus' authority. He speaks to the dead man and says, get up. He has the power and the weight and the clout that he speaks to even dead men and they obey him. Death and the grave are under his command. And this isn't just a theory that they talk about and say, oh, I think this Messiah has the power over death. In fact, it is a reality. The dead man sits up in his open coffin and begins to speak. And then Jesus says, come here, I want to show you somebody. And he presents him to his mother. And all the people rejoice saying, God has visited his people. God has drawn near. Deliverance and salvation has come. What a, what a roller coaster of events for this mother to have lost her son, to make all the preparations for burial and begin to allow it to sink in that she is alone, that she is a widow, that she has no sons, no children. And you know, in biblical language, that means no future. And she's in fact in the very same position that Israel is in. Israel has, has nothing. Israel has no future. Israel is widowed. Israel is barren until she receives a son, the resurrected Jesus. Now this woman receives a resurrected son, which is just a foretaste of the resurrection of Jesus. Everyone now rejoices after they see this and they call Jesus a great prophet because he's doing things just like Elijah and Elisha did. Remember what Jesus is doing here is sort of a recapitulation of the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Remember Elijah restored the only son of a widow? Raised him from the dead. You remember that? Remember Elisha had dealings with a Gentile officer named Naaman? There are a number of fascinating parallels between Elisha and Naaman and Jesus and this centurion. Uh, Remember Naaman sends a Jewish girl to talk to Elisha about his plight. The centurion sends Jewish elders to talk about his servant. Isn't that that interesting? Um, Naaman never meets Elisha. Elisha heals him at a distance by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's God who heals him, right? Uh, Naaman is healed as a, at a distance. So is, so is the centurion's servant. Jesus never meets the centurion and both take, a place, uh, take place at a remove. 
the people here have heard these stories of Elijah and Elisha from the time they were small. And now they're witnessing these things and they see the echoes of what God is doing. We know what God was doing then. And now we see God doing them now before our eyes, except these things are happening in a greater way. Elijah prayed to God that he would raise the son of the widow. Jesus just speaks to the dead son and he is resurrected in new life. They know that that these things are greater than they ever were before. When the centurion testifies that, that Jesus is the authority, Jesus is at the top of the chain of command, what they all understand here is that, yeah, he's a prophet, but he's a greater prophet than has ever come before. God himself has visited his people. That's what they, that's what they say. Now, let's quickly reflect on these two amazing stories in the gospel of Luke and the deliverance and the healing that Jesus brought. In the first story, there was this dread and this fear of something terrible that was about to happen. The, the sickness and the sorrow uh, that, that you feel when you know something, something bad is coming. You don't know exactly when. It could be tomorrow. It could be the day after. But it's, it's coming. It's inevitable. The servant grieving over the loss of this child. It's, it's coming. That's the first story. The, the second story, something bad had already happened. And now we're trying to deal with it. Now we're trying to let it sink in and, 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 and soak in. And in the second story, all hope was lost. Nobody's asking for help there. In both stories, Jesus enters and demonstrates his absolute final authority over the effects of the fall, sickness and death. He gets the final word over sickness and death. Now consider in just a moment, just, just for a moment, think about the dread and the fear and the worry and the grief of these two stories. Now, now run through these stories again in your mind, but instead of a sick servant and a dead son, think about whatever is on your mind right now that you dread the most. What, what are you worried about? What are you, what are you really, really fearing? What is your anxiety right now? The thing, the thing that you most dread happening or, or, or the thing that already happened that you can't do anything about. The thing like the son who died that, you know, even if I ask for something to happen, it's already done. Maybe it's something that's looming on your calendar. Maybe it's something that you fear is going to happen someday. Maybe it's something that happened years ago. But the fear, the sorrow, the frustration, the helplessness are all there. And you know it, you feel it, you live with it every day. It's the thing that you think about all the time in the back of your mind. The thing that wakes you up at two in the morning. The thing that you think about when you're shaving or when you're just going about your business. Think about that helplessness just as it's present in these stories. What happens in your story when Jesus presents himself? What kind of deliverance and what kind of salvation from this terrible thing are, are you hoping for? What are you, what are you looking for? Do you readily, openly affirm that he is the final authority? Do you confess that with the centurion? That, that, that when he says something, that's it? <laughs> that he is the authority? Or, or do you think Jesus' rule is more or less like a suggestion? Something you just kind of take in stride. It's kind of like an advice uh, you know, columnist. He just says things and you say, okay, well, that's, that's good to know. I'll listen when I get ready. Does Jesus come into your story and, 
and ask you to do something or tell you to do something that you're not ready to do. Like, like do not weep. Does he do things you don't expect? Like touch the coffin, like speak to the dead. Or, or is your, your perspective of the kind of deliverance and salvation that you need, is your vision of that so, so narrow that you can only see deliverance and healing coming in one specific way. And if it doesn't come that way, well, it might as well not happen at all. It might as well just not happen because I'm not, I'm not ready for anything other than, than this thing. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I want. The Gospels reveal to us a Jesus who is almighty and all-powerful. A Jesus who invites us to ask great things of him. He is a great God, and faith in this great God asks for great things. We tend to only ask for things that are humanly possible. We expect God to bless us in ways that we can sort of achieve on our own power with our own resources. It's like we look at the spreadsheet, and we see what we've got, and we see what we can do, and we say, Lord, help us do that thing that we can do, I think, on our own. <laughs> now, what kind of faith is that? What kind of prayer is that? If we can do it on our own, what do we need God for? What do we need prayer for? We're sufficient. In fact, what we're saying is, well, that's the thing I deserve because it all works out. I deserve that. And it's, it's by design. It's not a coincidence that these two stories happen right after Jesus at the end of chapter six, we saw last week, right after Jesus tells us to build our, our lives on the firm foundation of the rock, right after he says, why do you call me Lord and don't do the things I tell you to do? Jesus says that, and then he openly displays just how he can make such great demands over us and over our lives. He is that great and high and final authority over all things. And yet we live and we plan and we think and we react to the world as if it's all up to us. And it's all to be accomplished under our own power and strength with the resources that we have. It's all going to happen. If anything good is going to happen, it's going to happen in our own strength. And only in the way that we can imagine it happening. But we must be bold like the centurion. This, this Gentile, this separated guy with no status, he's, he's cut off from the covenant, he's outside the people of God, and yet he makes this great request of Jesus saying, I know you can do it. You don't even have to come to the house. You can do it. Just say it. Just say it and it's done. We are sons and daughters. Do we have a faith similar to the centurion? You have not because you ask not. The thing that runs like a hamster in a wheel over and over in your head, that worry. Do you, do you pray about that thing or do you just worry? Do you just, are you just anxious about it? Does, it? does it just make you feel more and more and more helpless and fearful and anxious? Or do you pray out loud all the time about that thing? You have not because you ask not. See, this is how the world has changed. And I'm not just talking about the little things that, that we deal with and the big things that we deal with in our lives. The world has changed when the saints are stirred up to ask God to move. It was in our psalm this morning. Over and over and over, you see that kind of cycle where, where everything gets terrible and God's people cry out and he delivers them. That's, that's how it works. That's, that's how it goes. That's how the world has changed. Cry out to God for deliverance. 
Ask. Ask for change. Ask. Ask for great things. He is a great God who has promised to give us the nations. Have you asked? Ask like the centurion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us this boldness to draw close to your throne. May we not be fearful or anxious or worried or, or, or full of fretting, but Father, may we be so bold to ask just like the centurion. You have shown us through the gospels what you're willing to do. Father, we're, we're so, so weak and so faithless. So embolden us by your Holy Spirit and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.